So part three of an unquiet mind. Uh, I forgot my book at home, so. Oh, thank you. Thanks. So, uh, so part part one um, kind of gave us a little bit of a overview of K. Redfield Jameson's history and sort of progress up until the point at which she really began to show symptoms, and part two really focused on the symptoms and the outcome and the effects and then the treatments and um, how those were working for her. So part three, as the title suggests, um, is going to be about uh, personal relationships and the value of personal relationships in the um, progress and recovery of someone with uh, of someone with bipolar disorder. Um, okay, so what what do you want to talk about in terms of part three? Yeah. What uh, What do you think about the relationship? Uh, gave her the courage, or um, uh, really helped her in her recovery? What specifically about at least? Um, well, we can talk about her relationship with David, the uh, Air Force, uh, the Army officer, right? Um, what? Uh, what was it about that relationship, do you think? Okay. Okay. Okay, so um, here, here's an interesting paradox, though. Um, she loves the hypomania, which has its own form of lack of um, structure, regimentation, um, but yet she seems to also love this structure and regimentation that the relationship offers. Um, how do you resolve that paradox? Or, or am I making more of it than it needs to be made of? I think that's human 
<laughs> so we are, you know, we're complex organisms. You know, we, we have paradoxes within us that aren't necessarily resolved. Um, what do you suppose it was about the um, regimentation and the structure? Comforting. Okay. Right. So this relationship really represented kind of a return to um, her life uh, when she was younger as part of the military family with a lot of um, predictability, regimentation. Did you notice what she said about the um, curtsying? <laughs> So it depends who, who's doing the curtsying, I guess, or who's being curtsied to. <laughs> so she's uh, almost resolving this um, conflict she had with this um, uh, orderly, regimented military life um, and, and the rules and protocols. She sees that there's really some, there's really some advantages. Um, so she's growing up a little bit, too. What, uh, what, um, what else? Let's see. He, um, so she goes over, visits with him, uh, and, then, uh, and then he dies. That's a bummer. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and... Uh, but she seems to handle that pretty well, doesn't she? Yeah. Um, you know, you'd think that if anything, that kind of a stress would, um, yeah, yeah. Um, that might be um, excuse enough to stop taking medication or um, uh, what, uh, what do you make out of the, um, the outcome of his death? What in particular are you referring to? Okay. So which part specifically sticks out for you? Um. Is it that second paragraph there?
Yeah. Um, so, um, because of him, uh, life went on, which is really weird. Um, as if without him, life wouldn't have gone on. It's kind of a funny thing to say. So what is it about him? What was it about him that really shifted things for her, that really changed things for her? Yeah, so his, um, his security, the security that she found, the, um, the steadiness, the, um, and probably I think more acceptance, uh, more, more importantly, the acceptance of her with her disorder, right? Um, you know, there, uh, there didn't, there really wasn't any doubt for him that, um, that it seemed like there wasn't much of a doubt that he would accept her. Um, although there was that weird pause, right, when she uh, when she tells him about this uh, bipolar, she has to go get the medicine. Um, and so, um, so in a lot of ways, it could have been almost anybody who was meaningful in her life, but this just it just happened to be sort of the right person at the right time when she needed that particular um, support, and that allows her to really continue with the treatment and to really start to recover and build a new life. Yeah, I'm sorry, Chris. Yeah, so, uh, so you're right in a lot of ways, because um, the goal of cognitive behavioral therapy is to um, change, change people's cognitive responses. Um, it really did. It really was very therapeutic like that, yeah. That his relationship provided that. Huh. I hadn't thought about that. What else? Um, so, uh, so he dies, and then uh, she goes back to um, L.A. Um, and then she takes this sabbatical for a year. Um, okay, um, a sabbatical is um, basically a paid vacation um, during which you're expected to um, do some research or produce some scholarly material that you don't have the time to do when you're in the middle of um, teaching for um, as an academic or um, in her case um, clinical practice and that kind of thing. So it kind of gives you some time off to do bigger things, bigger projects. Um, 
and uh, what's that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they're getting, unfortunately, um, starting to become rare in academia even. But. So, the, um, so she goes over and um, she talks about uh, living at Oxford um, and uh, what, do you, what do you make about all that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's really different from LA, really different from her life um, in LA and the expectations and the pressures in LA. Um, now, one of the things we saw earlier in the book was it seemed like when she was in England, um, uh, and this was before um, she was in treatment, um, her life was better. You know, she didn't seem to have the kinds of complications that she did. Yeah. Yeah. Mm hmm. Any ideas? Okay. Um, so they're more sort of structured. Um, you want to elaborate on that? What you think about that? I've got some ideas, but I want to see what you think. More formal, more hierarchical. Yeah, it's almost similar with military kind of structures. Um, you know, the Oxford system with the, you know, she's one of the fellows and the don, and they sit at the t at the head table, and all the undergraduates, you know, sit below them. And um, so, in a lot of ways, you know, she's really starting to dig this whole um, structure and hierarchy and stuff like that. Um, and L.A. is very opposite of that. It's very um, egalitarian, very, yeah. Um, yeah, in fact, they probably despise. And in, in most of the United States, we don't generally um, like that kind of hierarchical structure. But um, So maybe that is partly uh, comforting to her about uh, one of the things that's comforting about England. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. What else? Less frantic. So, so I'm not going to say that all of England or Scotland, um, you know, everybody there, uh, that not everybody um, is more relaxed maybe than, um, than, she, than she exists in L.A. Um, but, um, yeah, there's probably is in a lot of ways a slower um, pace. Things do move a little more slowly. 
Um, and in academia there, um, there's less of the there's less of the chasing after grant money that we tend to do in uh, academia in the United States, I think. So that may have an effect, yeah. And she's not seeing patients either, which is going to make a big difference, too. That's a lot of stress. Yeah, I think you're seeing a lot of responsibility. Both when she went over there when she was an Yeah. But she seems to do pretty well, even after sabbatical when she um, travels back to, uh, to L.A. What else in here? Well, though she does say here um, that she really dreaded leaving. Um, she said, uh, on page 163, she talks about, my moods had held at a, at a more even keel for longer than I could remember. My heart was newly alive and my mind was in a glorious state. Having loped, grazed, and mulled its less medicated self through Oxford and St. George's. Um, and uh, this is going to introduce when she meets uh, Richard Wyatt here. And that'll be, that'll, her experience with Richard Wyatt will uh, comprise a good part of part four. How does, uh, what do you, um, what do you take of this guy? What's that? He's in over his head. Yeah, in some ways. How, um, is he... In what ways is he the same, and in what ways is he different from uh, David? Okay, so he's got this kind of flip kind of attitude, um, which is very uncharacteristic of um, probably of uh, David's attitude. What else? Okay. And um, how does that contrast with her relationship, for example, uh, well, when she was married with her first husband? Was he not an artist? Yeah. Well, he could have been. Creativity and insanity kind of is a fine line. Yeah. But certainly her stability was vastly different, too. Um, so it's a real intense contrast in a lot of ways, I think. Um, what else? In there. Um, she points out on 
Yeah. So he's he's not a as sort of deep of a thinker, I guess, or he's not a contemplator. Yeah. Um, So he's very pragmatic, you know. Um, you might describe him as having his feet on the ground, um, rather than sort of being flighty, in some ways. Okay, how so? So maybe there are, um, you know, and uh, you might think of the re of the connection that you might see between his personality or characteristics and her father's. Without, you know, if you took out, if you took the mania away from her father, would he be a lot like uh, Richard Wyatt? You don't think so? Oh, that's right. Okay. Okay. So we've got a bit of an issue coming up here. Why does she choose this guy? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> because what? Proximity. Proximity effect, yeah. There's something to be said for balance, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. When you, uh, yeah, to have these two very intense analytical people in a relationship, um, and she tends toward the darker sides of moods, probably, right? So um, you know that may keep, you know, if you get two people that tend that way, maybe she's more likely to go into one of these dark moods. Um, what else do you think about this relationship? Okay. Yeah. 
Good. Okay. So she, you know, her at this point in her progress and her therapy and her development, uh, um, this may be the right person at the right time in the same way that David was the right person at the right time. Um, good. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Anything else here? So part four is um, pretty short. It's, the, it's a sh very short ver um, sort of tying up some of the loose ends. Um, and uh, she's going to make a reference in part four to uh, Jim Watson, who is the Watson of, Rots of Watson and Crick, who discovered um, DNA and developed the ideas of uh, DNA. And uh, it's interesting because he was recently, he recently had to resign from the Cold, uh, Cold Water Spring Institute, I think it's called, in New York, and um, Cold Harbor, Cold Spring Harbor Lab, um, because uh, he had made some uh, some quite offensive um, racist remarks about genetics and um, the intelligence of blacks uh, versus whites. So um, I read that with a little bit of knowledge about that this guy is very, um, he's, he's very outspoken, uh, very um, mercurial in his um, temperament, very changing, very... Um, so he's an interesting character. But anyway, anything else you want to bring up in context of this? OK. Um, so next class, uh, I'll give you the um, assignment for your paper that you'll write for An Unquiet Mind. It's already actually available on the download site if you want to download a copy now, but I'll, uh, I'll go over it more. Uh, in detail on Thursday. Wednesday, sorry. Next class, I should just say. I should just say next class. Um, where are we now? 35. Um, why don't we, uh, we'll talk a little bit about schizophrenia and then we'll take a break. You want to bring the room back to a classroom format? Thank you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm not too scary.
Um, I've also, let's see, I marked your quizzes. I can get those back to you at the break. Give you some details about that. Okay, so schizophrenia. Um, any uh, questions or anything in particular you want to talk more about in terms of schizophrenia? Okay, so how difficult would it be for someone to fake uh, schizophrenia? Okay, good question. Let me think about that for a few minutes. What else? Anything else? It makes reference to the movie A Beautiful Mind. Uh, okay, go ahead. Uh, how well is that related to the subject? I mean, okay. Okay. Uh, so the question is, how well does uh, A Beautiful Mind, which is a movie based on the life of John Nash, how well does that movie portray schizophrenia? Um, it's been a f couple of years since I've seen that movie. Um, I think it does generally a pretty good job. Um, it, I know that it is inaccurate in a number of places. I've seen uh, people who actually uh, knew John Nash and knew his symptoms, and it, there are some liberties that are taken with the story. Uh, for example, that whole scene with the glass in the library, writing on the glass thing, that, that never even took place at all. Um, and, uh, or it was in his dorm room, wasn't it, or something? I can't remember, yeah. Was it in the library? And so, maybe it was actually in the dorm room that it took place and not the library. Uh, the symptomology is uh, relatively close. Um, I, th seems to me, I remember balking at a certain point uh, toward the end of the movie but I can't remember what it was that was giving me a problem. Um, generally, it's not a bad portrayal of schizophrenia. Um, but again, as I told you before, when I use video clips in here, I generally don't like to use fictional uh, movies because, um, because they, all, they do all have errors in them. Because just in order to keep the story interesting, sometimes you have to modify things. Uh, but it's worth watching, uh, and in fact, it's a it's a good exercise to watch it and find for yourself what the errors are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good movie. And um, what else? Yeah, 
So uh, is there, so what you're asking, is there a correlation between high intelligence and the development of schizophrenia? Nope. 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 Um, Um, so, those are um, probably the more interesting stories, too, um, rather than the dull stories of the typical individual with schizophrenia who comes from um, a quite impoverished um, environment, low socioeconomic status. Um, but we'll talk, we'll talk about that as we go through. Anything else? How do you distinguish schizophrenia from any of the myriad of other disorders that come with psychosis? So, uh, so what uh, is the difference between uh, how would you do a differential diagnosis between schizophrenia and other disorders that have, do you mean delusions? Okay. Okay, yeah. We will talk a little bit about some differential diagnosis stuff. Anything else? Um, okay, so uh, let's, as you know that I like to do, let's talk a little bit about um, the history of schizophrenia. So uh, we go back uh, essentially in terms of describing schizophrenia as it's currently described. Uh, Kreplin, Emil Kreplin, uh, described a syndrome that he called dementia praecox. And um, what he described in this syndrome was the idea that there was a gradual uh, decline in intellectual functioning, but also that that decline was permanent. It wasn't as if uh, there was a decline and then it came back up, but rather this real gradual and at the same time permanent decline. Um, and on autopsy, one of the things that he found out was that these patients also exhibited some sort of premature uh, deterioration of brain tissue. So, um, so it was pretty clear right from the beginning that this disorder has some biological characteristics to it uh, that are going to be important. He uh, gets followed up by uh, Bleuler. Uh, and Bleuler uh, was important because he actually developed some of the ideas on how the symptoms could be classified and how you could organize the classification of the symptoms. Because one of the characteristics of schizophrenia is that it comes in a lot of different varieties. Um, the, and the symptoms for the different varieties are sometimes quite complex and varied. So it's going to be difficult to treat it as one disorder. But he defined um, the core asset, the, the, the core essence of schizophrenia as being this idea of splitting. Uh, 
Um, and this splitting means that the ideas, the concepts, the thoughts you had earlier, um, and the associations that you had built up between those thoughts and ideas and concepts suddenly start to disappear. And what you wind up with is a lot of sort of jumbled ideas that are not really connected and whole. And so this idea of splitting is going to be the key aspect of the, the name. Uh, schizo uh, means split. So the idea of a split mind, essentially, is what schizophrenia came down to. Now this, don't, the problem with this definition is that you're going to confuse this, and in fact, it gets confused all the time in culture, common culture, common culture, in popular culture and common parlance. Um, because of this idea of a split, people confuse schizophrenia with what disorder? what used to be called multiple personality disorder is now called dissociative identity disorder. So it's the splitting of these associations, not the splitting of personalities. And so a lot of times what you'll find is somebody in the popular press or the media or a politician, uh, I think I heard a politician say one time that their opponent had um, a schizophrenic approach to health care. You know, like they wanted it, they wanted it one way, and they wanted it another way. And um, so, when you when you encounter that, I hope it I hope it irritates you as much as it irritates me. If it doesn't, I haven't done my job. The next uh, important name in uh, the history of schizophrenia is uh, Moniz, uh, Antonio Egas Moniz. Uh, he's a Portuguese physician. And Moniz uh, found in the 1930s that um, when he went in through an operation in uh, chimpanzees and severed the connections of the neural tissue in the prefrontal cortex, that um, what he got was these chimpanzees that previously were very, um, very violent, very um, um, agitated suddenly became very calm. And that's one of the characteristics of some people who have schizophrenia, is they have this very agitated experience, this um, uh, very, um, and, and that's one of the reasons that they will oftentimes be uh, treated in hospitals, because it's very difficult to have somebody like that at home. And so at this time, essentially all we had to do, all we could do to treat people was to put them in cages, lock them up, um, you know, lock them to their beds so they couldn't hurt themselves, they couldn't hurt anybody else. Well, Moniz decides, you know what, um, these kinds of behaviors are so similar to humans that have schizophrenia that maybe we could try this in humans and see if it works. And lo and behold, uh, it does. And this will become what's known as the prefrontal uh, lobotomy. And so essentially, here's what the lobotomy does. If this is your brain, here's your cerebellum. 
um, and your uh, limbic system is up in here with the thalamus and the hypothalamus and the um, hippocampus and the amygdala. Well, uh, what he did essentially was he severed this connection between the, um, the limbic system, which is associated with emotion, and the prefrontal cortex, which is associated with higher functioning, executive functioning, right? And when they did that operation, what they found was that some of the people got better. And essentially, throughout the course of the lobotomy, it came out in thirds. About a third of the people who got a lobotomy was better. About a third wound up the same. There's no change. And about a third um, were worse off at the end. That's a pretty dismal record. Even in baseball, 33% isn't too good. So, uh, but don't forget that this is really the only thing that they had to treat people with this really awful debilitating disease. And uh, the, the state hospitals were in such a state of being overcrowded because of all the people who had to be hospitalized uh, basically for the rest of their life with this disease that um, they were desperate for some kind of a treatment that would help relieve their burden. And so this guy comes along. Uh, what happens is Moniz does this thing in uh, Portugal. And uh, in the 1940s, a fellow from the United States named Walter Freeman um, will develop a way to do this operation here in the United States. And um, he became impatient with it because the original way that they would do this operation was that they would drill a hole in the side of your head and then they would insert these uh, basically like spatulas um, and insert them in the side of your head and then sever the connections. It was very precise, but it also required anesthesia and it was a complicated operation. You could only do one in a day, maybe two. And Walter Freeman said, look, there's all these people suffering in these hospitals. I want to help them. And so in order to simplify this operation one day, he got the brilliant idea that um, if, uh, if you, uh, there's a very thin layer of bone between your eyeball and your brain and uh, in, the back of your, in the back of your orbital socket. And what he decided was that maybe we could um, somehow get to the brain through this thin little piece of bone. And um, he took a couple of ice picks from home. And this is in the time when you had ice boxes, right? So every, every house had these ice picks. And they were usually about this long and, you know, real sharp. And um, he found a way to do it, what he called transorbital lobotomy. And the transorbital lobotomy meant that you went through the orbital socket. So he would take these ice picks, and basically you can insert them into your eye socket, and you go around the eye so you don't damage the eye, and then um, uh, orient them so that they're resting against that thin piece of bone. And he would take a uh, mallet, you know, like a, rub like a rubber mallet or a wooden hammer, and tap up through that 
uh, piece of bone, and now he had the ice pick in your brain, and he could go to work um, severing these connections in the prefrontal lobotomy, in the prefrontal cortex. So he developed this procedure, and it was a great hit, because he could, he could do like uh, 10, 12 of these things a day, because he didn't have all the complications of surgery. Um, so anyway, he, uh, he started going around the country and demonstrating this procedure, and he actually drove in his uh, station wagon, which he called the Lobotomobile. Um, I <laughs> swear to God, this, this is, you know, as far as I can tell, I've done a lot of research on this, and it really did exist. And so uh, he would travel around the country and, dis and demonstrate this procedure. And it was very... Um, it was very desirable for the people who ran these institutions. And a lot of the people who got the lobotomy were the real indigent clients, the clients that didn't have someone to take care of them and that were very poor. And these hospitals were overburdened with these poor people. Well, if a third of them got better and you could send them home, that was great. Um, the other third actually got worse, but they just turned into vegetables, so you could send them home too because they weren't dangerous to anybody. So you basically got two Yeah. Yeah, um, and, and, I, and I love to tell this story because it really illustrates the desperation that people in mental health were facing with this disorder that was you know, something you couldn't, we really didn't have any treatments for it. And um, how lucky we are that in uh, 1952, uh, Henri Labrie, Henri develops um, the first antipsychotic drugs, um, the first of which will be uh, uh, chlorpromazine. And um, this will become the basis for the drug which is called Thorazine. And this is the first drug that y you can give to clients with schizophrenia, and you got like um, almost 100% would respond to the, to the drug. And so now what we start to see is these huge warehouses of people in the 1950s are going to start emptying out over the next couple of decades. And so more and more people are going to be able to leave the hospital, go back home, or go back into the community. Um, so um, it, uh, you know, I can't understate enough, or can't overstate enough, the importance of, of this stuff because it really changed the lives of a lot of people with schizophrenia um, markedly for the better, plus the level of treatment that they were going to get um, is better. Yeah. Is that one that was discovered by accident and tried for like a, a different anesthesia or something? Yeah, it was. It was discovered. Most drug discoveries are uh, accidental in a lot of ways, yeah. Nope, that was, that was one that was accidentally discovered. Questions on this? Uh, the dark side of Walter Freeman was uh, that the transorbital lobotomy um, began to go out of favor shortly, uh, right around the time of these drug developments. Um, there were beginning to show up. They, for the first time, see he'd been doing this for about 15 years without any kind of peer review 
or without any kind of review of his methods and the outcomes. And after about 15 years, people started to look up the data on his patients and look at the outcomes. And they started finding out um, that it really didn't work for a lot of people. And so uh, the, the public, the, the opinion in the scientific community really turned against Walter Freeman. And what he wound up doing, because he couldn't do this in hospitals anymore, but he was convinced that it was really a useful operation for people, was he started um, doing them privately. So he would put an ad in a paper uh, a few weeks before he was going to be in town, and he would rent, uh, you know, like a hotel room. And he would say, you know, if you have somebody with um, schizophrenia or behavioral problems, come to my hotel and I'll evaluate the case. And so, um, so he would do these operations, uh, and uh, some of the some of the patients weren't even didn't even have schizophrenia, and so it just it really it's a real tragic story um, in the history of psychosurgery, as if there aren't any, as if there are aren't any tragic stories in the history of psychosurgery. Um, okay, so. Uh, so who's going to get schizophrenia? Um, well, um, it occurs cross-culturally. This is one of the few psychological disorders that essentially has the same symptomology regardless of culture. For example, in depression, the symptomology in East Asia tends to be more of a somatic uh, symptomology. So people will tend to have more body aches, headaches, um, digestive problems, then they do emotional disturbances like uh, in the United States, that's the primary symptom is the emotional disturbance. But in schizophrenia, um, the symptomology is essentially the same across cultures. But um, in developing countries, we tend to see a better prognosis. That is, people's quality of life um, in terms of uh, recovery from the disorder. I'm sorry? Whoops. I didn't mean to hit that. Um, the, their, uh, their prognosis in terms of recovery tends to be better, and that may be because of the enhanced levels of social support that typically exist in cultures uh, which are in these uh, developing countries. So they tend to have more extended family support, for example. Whereas in, in the developed countries, we tend to have these um, nuclear families where there isn't that extended kind of family support network. Uh, it occurs at roughly twice the rate of the general population in individuals who are living alone. And what's causing that is not very clear. First of all, um, there may be less social support, which we know is uh, useful in treatment for schizophrenia. But also, if, um, if they aren't living alone, if they have a cohabitant, that cohabitant may actually take care of the individual with schizophrenia and cover for them so that they don't have to seek help or seek a diagnosis. Now, as the disorder gets worse and worse and worse, it's going to be less easy to do that. But, um, but that may, there may be possibly two factors there. Uh, we do see a higher rate in lower socioeconomic status groups. And again, it's unclear whether 
there's something about the propensity of being in a soci lower socioeconomic status group that leads to schizophrenia, like um, other things that are associated with that, like poverty, um, not eating well as a, um, as a young child, um, environmental influences as a young child that may be common. Or part of it, at least part of it, is due to the idea that um, with schizophrenia, it's very difficult to work. It's very difficult to, um, to maintain a standard of living. And so people with schizophrenia tend to experience what's called downward social mobility. So they tend to start making less money. Their jobs tend to be less permanent, more temporary. And their um, socioeconomic status generally goes down anyway. Schizophrenia treatment, second highest uh, medical cost, treatment cost. I'm not too surprised, although I would tend to think that the reason for that would be um, the drugs that they may have been using were on patent, so they were higher cost. Yeah, but I'm not sure about that. There are some antipsychotics that are off patent now and are a lower cost. But now we're starting to shift to the atypical antipsychotics, which are still on patent. So, yeah, question. Is there any correlation between uh, schizophrenia and uh, mental illness? Like, is it shelter? Women who do what? Have a child maybe during or after birth, postpartum? Postpartum schizophrenia? Yeah. No, not heard of it. Um, men tend to develop schizophrenia at an earlier age, late adolescence, early 20s. Women tend to catch up with the prevalence over time, so it's about equal in the general population. Women ten it tends to emerge in women in their uh, mid to late 20s rather than early 20s. And as I said earlier, uh, no, there is no um, strong correlation with intelligence. So. Um, uh, uh, it'll occur equally. It's an equal opportunity intelligence disease. Other questions about demographics? Um, it's about four. I want to take a break till about ten after, and then we'll. Finish her up. Okay, we're back. Um, let's talk about uh, diagnosing schizophrenia. Um, first of all, uh, schizophrenia has two broad categories of symptoms. One type of symptom is referred to as positive, and the other type is referred to as negative. That doesn't have anything to do with the positive symptoms being desirable and the negative being undesirable. They're both undesirable, but um, it has more to do with how they exhibit themselves, and I'll talk more about those later. The primary uh, symptom that's associated with schizophrenia and that'll differentiate it from the other disorders is the presence of both delusions and hallucinations. Um, Hallucinations 
in schizophrenia typically take the form of auditory hallucinations. And so you will hear voices talking to you. Um, and what's important about these particular auditory hallucinations that'll differentiate themselves from hallucinations that might occur in other disorders, for example, in um, obsessive compulsive disorder, the obsessions will sometimes take the form of auditory hallucinations. But in schizophrenia, these auditory hallucinations will always be perceived as coming from outside the individual. Um, so they're voices that are not the individual's interior voice, but rather external voices that are typically giving commands or denigrating the person in some way or um, that may involve um, uh, profanity and things like that. Yeah, question. I'm not familiar with Alzheimer's. I couldn't tell you. Sorry. Yeah. Um, then uh, they also need to have the presence of delusions. And delusions essentially are beliefs that are false. Um, you can't objectively verify them. Um, and more importantly, those false beliefs can't be corrected by reasoning with the person. Um, and so something like um, cognitive behavioral therapy isn't going to work very well with someone who's experiencing delusions. You can't talk them out of these experiences they're having. These experiences are subjectively real to the person. So, And the delusions will typically come in two broad categories. One that we call bizarre delusions. Um, bizarre delusions are delusions that are not plausible uh, given you know, our, our objective experience of reality. Um, for example, uh, a common uh, delusion will be uh, uh, being possessed by some sort of evil force. Um, and oftentimes being under the influence of, uh, of aliens. Um, so, um, so this is, these are uh, delusions that have these really strange components to them, as contrasted to the non-bizarre, which are relatively reasonable delusions. They could happen in reality, uh, but the likelihood of them happening is probably pretty low. So for example, here's one that is perfectly reasonable people will have a delusion that they're being followed. And you, of course, you can't, you can't find the person following them, but they have this subjective experience of being followed. Um, or uh, not uncommon is also that people will have a delusion that uh, a celebrity is in love with them. And they might have to take a trip to see the celebrity and consummate their love, maybe. Yeah. Um, they also, they, the delusion, the form of the delusions will change across cultures. These basic um, symptomology, this basic symptomology will stay in place, but the um, culture will bring in its own ideas and symbols into the delusion. So the delusions will incorporate the contemporary culture. But, um, but across cultures, we see these, uh, these broad symptoms occurring. Um, these are 
for the most part considered positive symptoms. Okay. Um, in addition, we also tend to see uh, disorganized thinking. So this idea of the split mind, the split of associations. So your thinking becomes weird, disorganized, disjuncted. Um, and also your speaking can become disorganized. So people will engage in things like word salad, where they'll come out with a whole series of words which um, are totally disconnected. And um, they don't have any logical connection between the words. But oftentimes, there's a rhythm to them, or there's some other um, connecting principle in these words. Echolalia uh, is a condition where people will, continuously, will sit there and continuously repeat phrases or particular sounds. Um, and then, uh, in addition to uh, thinking and speaking, sometimes there are uh, behavior problems. And so people will exhibit inappropriate responses to uh, stimuli. Or uh, if they're asked a question or spoken to, they, uh, they might utter some sort of word that's totally inappropriate in that situation or context. As I said, those are mostly the positive symptoms. The negative symptoms have to do with, uh, basically, the positive symptoms have to do with being out there, right? The patient is out there. The negative symptoms have to do with the patient withdrawing. And so what you'll oftentimes see is flattened affect. So their moods will tend to be very um, flat, not high, not low, just um, constant flat. Um, Alogia, so uh, sometimes they will uh, stop speaking for time periods. Uh, that is, um, it's, but they, al they also sometimes will have, there's a form of schizophrenia, catatonic, um, which has catatonia as one of the uh, characteristics. And that's actually a period where someone will stop speaking, they'll stop becoming responsive, um, they'll stop moving, um, very disturbing. And then uh, abolition, basically, they stop having motivation to do things. Um, they will, uh, you know, basically not have any reason to do anything. It's almost like um, depression. Elogia is um, people stop speaking. Um, it doesn't seem to be a problem with, uh, for example, the brain areas related to speech production, but rather. Um, they just are, uh, for whatever reason, not speaking at all. Yeah, Victor. Echolalia. Aphasia. No. Aphasia has to do with. Um, uh, not being able to, if I remember correctly, aphasia is not being able to remember, not being able to recognize the parts of an object or the, or the whole object and just seeing the parts one way or the other. I get aphasia and uh, there's another uh, syndrome that I forget, that I forget the name of that I get mixed up. Yeah.
echolalia? Um, yeah, but they tend to sit and repeat phrases and sounds. Yeah, yeah, it's not an impairment. It's not a cognitive speech production impairment, um, but rather a behavior um, that's repetitive, yeah. Yeah, it does have a lot of these sort of compulsive kinds of characteristics uh, in the same way that um, um, oh, I forgot what I was going to tie into that. Oh, uh, yeah, it does have a lot of that compulsive kind of characteristic to it, yeah. But the difference is going to be what? No. The knowledge of irrationality, yeah. So um, there's no knowledge of irrationality here. These people are delusional, yeah. No problem. Flat affect. Affect means emotion. Oh, okay. Flattened Sorry. emotions. Yep. Affect is another word for emotion. Psychologists like to do that. We can't ever use the uh, common word. We have to make up a new one. Helps us think we're smart. So uh, I've got uh, three, you know, whatever gets you through the night, huh? I've got three uh, video clips here. Um, one uh, shows a woman named Valerie, and Valerie has uh, what's identified as the paranoid subtype of schizophrenia. Peter uh, has a second subtype called disorganized. And then Isidore is the third one, and he has a subtype identified as undifferentiated. The subtypes in schizophrenia, the classification of the subtypes and the use of subtypes, or let's just say the usefulness of subtypes in a diagnostic system, are uh, controversial right now. Um, a lot of people don't think the subtypes are very useful. The treatments don't differ, for example, whether someone has a paranoid subtype or a um, disorganized subtype. Um, so what is really the usefulness of that diagnostic category? Uh, and, um, but that's, that's still something that is being resolved. Anyway, hopefully these will um, help you kind of get a, uh, an idea of what these people are experiencing. Come on, Valerie, you can do it. Okay, let's try that again.
<sighs> Come on, Valerie. Time to get a faster computer. A fast one. Did you hit that light back there, Victor? Thanks. Some subtypes of schizophrenia cause people to become emotionally blunted and incoherent 
paranoid schizophrenia, however, remain emotionally expressive and lucid. They will typically construct intricate and complex delusions about the nature of their persecution. In the following segment, note Valerie's delusions and consider how they might have developed and how they were reinforced by her daily experiences. I was unable to work for a good, oh, 10, 12 years in there because they were trying different medications and some worked better than others. And um, I had been hospitalized, I had been hospitalized 10 times and I had other episodes during those years of, of uh, terror and fear and, and so forth. At this point in my life, I had uh, except, totally accepted that I was mentally ill, so I went off the medicine again. And I had this hallucination that all the cars in the United States were plugged into a giant computer system that controlled where they went and how much traffic was going at any given time at any place in the country. And I had this idea in my mind that if I didn't get out and drive the car for so many hours every day, Somebody in my family would be killed or would die. And we had, me and all people who believed like me in my imaginary world, <laughs> had to go out and, and do time driving cars, tying up the computer system so that these other people wouldn't die. That all made sense to you? At the time, it made perfect sense. I'd get out there and drive for hours. At one point in time, I drove all the way over to Idaho. And I went three days without sleeping, and finally uh, I ended up in a car accident. I crashed into a rock wall. It seemed very real. There was a terrible, terrible fear, fear of death. Um, I was really into the religious thing, and I was into the concept of martyrdom, and that I may have to be a martyr and die for my faith, and because people were against me because of my beliefs. And I, I believed that Maybe there'd be a bomb in the car, and the car would blow up because they want to kill me that way. Or maybe they want to strangle me, or they'd come to my home and drag me off somewhere and torture me. Uh, I, there was a lot of definite fear, just pure, raw fear. And it was just as real as me sitting here talking to you right now. My husband struggled long with me for two or three years before he finally got the divorce. And towards the end, um, I had this... Uh, hallucination where um, I felt that I was being spied on through the TV set. Uh, my family was deeply Protestant, so in my mixed up psychotic world, I, it was the Catholics that were, that were uh, persecuting me. And in my illusion, I thought that the local priest was spying on me through the TV set. And if I wasn't in front of that TV set, 24 hours a day, they were going to come after me and drag me off and torture me. And so I finally got to a point where I decided I wasn't going to put up with this. Even if I had to die, I would get rid of that TV set. They weren't going to control me that way. So I took the TV set and I smashed it on the hearth of the fireplace. And that was the last straw with my husband. After that, after that, he decided I was violent and he was afraid I might kill him. And so he, uh, at that point, called the cops, and I was taken of all places to a Catholic hospital. Which <laughs> <laughs> it's just kind of ironic how that happened. I was still having illusions of people 
hiding under my bed coming out to kill me at night. Or uh, at one point I had, I felt like demons were choking me. At another point I thought I heard angels singing. You know, that's the thing with this mental illness. You can have bad ones and you can have good ones. And the good ones I wouldn't mind having again. When I saw Christ in the heavens, it was absolutely gorgeous, beautiful, <laughs> rosy red sky, and Jesus standing there with a crown on his head and his arms outspread, uh, and it was, it was a beautiful vision. Uh, I talked to the preacher about it, and he said it was probably because of all the medicine I was on, so, you know. <laughs> Paranoid schizophrenia begins to be expressed relatively later in life than other subtypes and usually does not appear until after age 25. Although paranoid schizophrenia can be devastating, this subtype responds well to medications and it has the highest rate of recovery. In the final segment, Valerie explains that she began to recover once she was committed to a psychiatric facility that was able to sustain her medical treatment. As you watch, be sure to note the various factors that Valerie believes contributed to her recovery. I think I, when I first started getting well was when they put me in damage, which was about 10 years ago. And prior to my damage experience, I'd be on a medicine and then I'd stop taking it because I couldn't tolerate the side and then everybody would get mad at me for not going off the medicine, and then I'd have another episode, and then I'd lie on the sideboard again. And they'd try another medicine, and I'd come home, and after a while, I'd quit taking that. And it took me a long time to come to the point where I realized and accepted the fact that I was mentally ill. I think that was the beginning of the healing, when I came to the point of acceptance that, yes, I've really got a problem, and yes, I really do need medication. It's just a matter of finding the right medication. One day, I came to the point where I felt that the only person I could have a decent conversation with was the doctor or a staff member, because everybody else in the ward was nurse. And they said, well, you know, I think you're getting better if you have many more days like this to send you home. Without the medication, I would probably still be mentally ill. But they found a medication that helped me, and as long as I take that medication, I'm fine. I'm working in mental health now, and I find it absolutely fascinating. I love my job. I have worked out just really great. I can't imagine doing anything else. I'm working 40 hours a week, get a regular job like every other person, get wages, I get benefits, I get vacation. Um, and I'm really, really happy with what I'm doing. Well, I was afraid of computers, and that was a part of my illness too, you know, the giant computer system tying up the cars and all of that. And so I finally came to a point where I realized I was going to have to know more about computers. I was going to keep my job. So I went out to the community college and started taking uh, computer classes. And I discovered that computers are the most fascinating, wonderful <laughs> machines. And they're not the terrible, horrible, scary things I thought they were. So one of my goals is to become a computer nerd. Want <laughs> <laughs> to hit the light back there? So uh, comments on that? <laughs> Why? Because that just shows how much or how important the TV is to me. <laughs> <laughs> I won't. I won't even. I won't even give that sexist comment the dignity of a response. Yes, ma'am. When, when 
Right. Yep. Yep. Very, very, uh, very uh, typical of OCD. Yeah. No, the treatments are entirely different. The, the uh, genetic uh, predisposition is uh, much lower in OCD. Um, the, um, yeah, there's very little difference. You know, there are, there are some similarities, but um, no, no, they're not related, no. I mean, as far as we know now, yeah. Well, um, you know, the more that we are able to map out the human genome, the better we'll know what at least the genetic uh, relationships might be between some of these disorders. But other questions or comments about Valerie? Seems to be doing pretty well, huh? Very good prognosis. Um, um, you know, she seems to be real stable on the medication and able to hold a job. And uh, so, you know, if you think about the general prevalence of these disorders, is about one percent of the population. If you have uh, four classes and each class has twenty-five people in it, it seems fairly likely. Although. Um, the college population is different than the general population. It seems fairly likely you might have sat in a class with someone who has schizophrenia and is, um, you know, and is managing their illness. So. Yep, that's true, um, especially for women. Yep. Yeah, the onset does come later for women typically. Although the average age, I think, of credit classes here is uh, 26, I think, and it's 36 for all classes here, yeah. <laughs> You'd be surprised. They look young, but uh, any other uh, questions or comments? I don't think it would be very high. I think um, the I think the paranoid subtype, uh, the onset is relatively acute and relatively severe. I don't think it's one of those that they'll be functional for a while and then they start becoming dysfunctional. Um, you know, like I said, they may have someone who covers for them. Uh, you know, f her husband, for example, um, you know, before the symptoms got too bad, he was able to manage it. But, um, yeah, I don't, I, I think it's pretty unlikely that they'll be able to be functional. The delusions will just get in the way. What's that? Um, is there any such thing as subclinical schizophrenia? That's a good question. I don't think so. Um, you know, 
there's nothing in the DSM about subclinical schizophrenia, but here's what I'll tell you. Uh, people have religious experiences. They see God. They see Jesus. Um, those are their subjective experiences. Those people are still functional. They're able to hold down jobs and work and everything. Um, is that a form of subclinical schizophrenia? Maybe. Um, but uh, if someone is functional, then according to the DSM, as long as it's not impairing their social, occupational, or um, interpersonal functioning, then it's, you know, it's not classified as a disorder. Yeah. Um, we're getting close to quitting time, so why don't we quit there, and we'll pick up uh, next time. Um, now, you're going to read, for next time, the chapter on uh, mental retardation and pervasive developmental disorders. I'm not going to cover mental retardation in class, but I will cover uh, autism and the uh, pervasive developmental disorders, just so you know. And oh, the quiz, uh, it uh, maximum eight points out of 10 on that one, not 10 out of 10. <laughs>